Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Hey, before we do say anything, uh, I want to thank Amanda Carpenter for sitting in for me the last two days. She did a fantastic job. Uh, I really appreciate it. it. It helps to go on vacation and know that you're leaving the podcast in good hands. So uh, again, thank you uh, to Amanda. And as I said in my newsletter this morning, um, I'd like to say that I'm tanned, ready, and rested and back. But unfortunately, uh, people continue to screw things up. Uh, we have these stories all over the country of school board meetings being really turned into, um, I was trying to come up with a different word for shit show, but it's too early in the morning to do that. We have the pandemic of the unvaccinated uh, continuing to spread. Um, and apparently, while I was uh, out of town, the former president, and which means, of course, the entire Republican Party, is apparently decided to go all in and celebrating the Confederacy and Robert E. Lee. <laughs> so it's like, welcome back, everybody. And who better to talk about all this with my colleague, Bill Crystal? How are you doing, Bill? I'm hanging in there. Uh, how are you, Charlie? Well, I'm, I, I, am, I am back and trying to get my head around all of this and to trying not to be uh, too discouraged by some of the things that are happening. But so we're, you and I are having this conversation two days before the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is amazing. I mean, it is amazing how 20 years, uh, it was 20 years ago, and still how fresh and how relevant it feels. I mean, I can still remember everything that I was thinking and doing that day, which is remarkable because I've forgotten all decades in the in the middle of it. But I mean, it, this is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago. And, and it is one of the few days of our lifetime, I think, that uh, everyone remembers where he was or uh, yeah. uh, what he or she was doing, right? I mean, there aren't that many. Kennedy, I was young yeah. when Kennedy was assassinated. What was I, I 10 remember. years old? But I remember yeah. that. I guess the moon landing pretty well. Is there anything else that's sort of a public, publicly remembered thing the way Pearl Harbor was for our parents' generation in, in our generation? I'm not, I'm not sure. I, yeah, I would think that those would be the two, uh, maybe the shuttle Challenger explosion. Yes. I, I certainly remember that. Yeah. Um, I actually remember I was teaching a class at Marquette University in journalism the day the the Challenger blew up, and I said, you know, this. I was told the class, I said, you know, this is this sort of is like a flashback to me of in in terms of, of of a shock to the nation of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and then I realized that nobody in the room there had uh, remembered that. Had and if even, you were teaching, if you were teaching that, born. and if you were teaching that class today, they wouldn't remember nine eleven. I I discovered I that teaching just before the pandemic. So that's, uh, now I remember it very clearly. And so where were you? Were you, were you doing the, were you in Wisconsin doing the right, doing the show? Right. I, I was, I was in, in our office area, the cubicle area, and I was, you know, preparing for my show. It started at eight thirty central time every morning. And I don't remember, I remember not having a lot of material that was particularly compelling. I think that Michael Jordan was either retiring or unretiring or something like that. <laughs> And I remember standing, you know, with sort of a stack of, no, I, I, the, the first thing I was, I, I heard that the, the plane had crashed into the, the World Trade Center. And the first report, I, I had no idea how large the plane was or how big it was. So I, I, I knew something major had happened. But I remember walking out of my cubicle and then we had TV set up and watching the second plane go in. Mm. And then you realize that your whole world had changed. <laughs> And, and did you do the show that morning? Well, I did. Um, we kept the morning guys on the air past 8.30 uh, for, for, for breaking news. And I remember that I sat down uh, in the studio and placed a call to uh, uh, somebody who had been a former reporter for the Milwaukee Journal, who I think was working for Newsday. And he was across the river looking at the towers and we were able to have him on the air and then, and then the phone, the phone went out. And then later I uh, did, did open up the phone lines and tried to put this into some perspective, you know, was this the worst day that, you know, in terms of American casualties since, since the civil war, what, you know, what, what, what would change? And you did have the sense that everything had changed. And and had that feeling for a very very long time. So it's it's very strange looking back on the last twenty years and all the things that we could not have predicted or anticipated. Yeah, no, I had the I, I remember vividly myself. I was down at the Mayflower Hotel, which, as you know, was about a block from our old Weekly Standard office, having a kind of business breakfast the way one did pre-pandemic occasionally um, with with a friend, actually Peter Berkowitz, whom you know some, I mm -hmm. think, and 
<clears throat> and we're, I, we were just catching up. It was totally random, had been scheduled, you know, weeks before kind of thing. And Gary Schmidt came down from the office and said, I guess he knew I was there. I met, was a mentioned to him that I'd be, you know, be, be just the Mayflower for an hour. And uh, around 8.30, I think, Eastern time, maybe it was 9, and said, you know, you should probably come back to the office. It looks like something really major is happening in terms of a terror attack in New York. I think this was just before the Pentagon. And then, so I was back up and, yeah, watching. We all clustered around our one TV, I think, at the Weekly Standard and uh, and watched. I, I, I remember when the White House was evacuated and someone from the White House called over and said, could I come? We're, we're evacuated, but we want to stay in touch. We need a place with computers. Uh, can we, co- a couple of us, come over and use one of your, use an office at the oh. Weekly Standard? These are, wow. you know, former, you know, uh-huh. writers for us and friends, yeah. of course, uh, from the speechwriting office. And so they did. And so we had this, our tiny, you know, uh, contribution, I guess, was that they they were in touch with uh, Mike Gerson and the and the president's speechwriters during that afternoon, I remember, as we uh, sat there just kind of taking it in. And uh, obviously, uh, uh, it was it was terrible. I do remember that night uh, going on um, the news hour. I think maybe it was still called mm-hmm. the McNeil Lehrer News Hour back then on PBS. And I was, they invited, asked me to come on, you know, eight, 10 minutes, just discuss the, you know, significance of what had happened. I, and um, I remember what, thinking, can I get there? It's in Arlington, the studio. And they had, a lot of the roads have been shut down in the DC area, especially anywhere near the Pentagon, obviously. But there was no problem. I think I just drove there and uh, had a, you know, very uh, somber and sort of tentative discussion with, I think, Jim Lehrer it was. And um, the one thing I, re- I remember, and I, I hope this is right, I, I, so I, I say this, you know, the, one's memory distorts things after 20 years, yeah. but I think this is right. I think I said something about, you know, he said, what are, the, what, what are some of the implications of this? And I said, I mean, God knows, but I think one thing we'll obviously have to, we'll be at war in some way or other right. in, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to have to go and remove the, the, the Al-Qaeda and deal with them. That probably means dealing with the Taliban government. And I remember he was a little surprised as i recall that is i mean people hadn't really begun to process they knew it was a huge shock a tragedy of course i think the heroic stories of flight 93 were, were beginning to learn that but people hadn't really thought through the sort of foreign policy uh, obvious kind of implications i'm not saying i was particularly ahead of anyone else but i that's the one thing i sort of occurred to me and um yeah, i think everyone took a little while then to start processing what had happened but uh you know, one thing I was, th- so I was thinking about it, like everyone has been in the last week or two, I suppose, you know, in a certain, there are all kinds of things one wishes we had done differently. I wish I had said differently and written differently. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in some ways, there's a lot to be great, um, grateful may not be the right word, a lot to be proud of, I can put it that way, in America's behavior over these 20 years. We didn't succumb to the worst temptations, either of bigotry, uh, you know, anti-Muslim bigotry or craziness on, on, on that side. Uh, or to kind of simple retreat and acquiescence and terror on the other side. And if you look, you know, over the, if you had told us 20 years ago, sort of the amount of terror, the number of terror attacks there'd be, they would flare back up after we got out of Iraq. But then again, we would sort of damp it down. The degree to which the Muslim world did not go crazy, the, the degree to which we were able to uh, fight back Islamism without uh, antagonizing hundreds of millions of Muslims, you know, the degree to which the country maintains civil liberties here at home and fairly normal politics. Um, I, I think this, that, that's, that's not, that's not nothing, you know, that's no, not it, it, it's, it's not because we all assumed that something else was going to be imminent. And, uh, I was, I was reading last night, I think it was in the New Yorker's account, uh, almost immediate account of it, it in, you know, to bring it all back. I think part of the shock was how successful the attack was. It was not just that we were vulnerable, right. but the, that that our enemies had pulled off this amazing, coordinated, almost flawless attack, which you really sort of couldn't emphasize that much back then. I mean, we were talking about, you know, how they were cowards and everything. In in, in fact, what we saw was that our enemy was much more determined um, and much more organized, which I think was was part of the shock of all of that at the time. I also think, you know, you, you you mentioned that we were sort of getting our, you know, trying to get our heads around what had happened. And I remember that day, there was no question. We knew that we had been, America had been attacked and America was at war. So, I mean, but, but how that would play out, we didn't know. And I was thinking about, you know, that image of, of George W. Bush sitting, um, you know, he was doing story hour, you know, reading to the kids and, and the left made, I think, you know, the Michael Moores of the world, you know, made a lot of hay out of the fact that he didn't immediately jump up because he didn't know what was going on. And in a lot of ways, he was sort of like all of us. 
Um, and I know he's the president, had more responsibilities, but it was what just happened, you know, I'm, you know, to process it. And so that first day, I would say, was a little bit shaky. But then I do think for whatever people think about him, and there were huge mistakes made with the weapons of mass destruction. We all know about that, um, you know, later in his presidency and later in, in all of this. But that week was really a moment of presidential leadership that was important for the country when he stood and gave that impromptu speech, you know, about, you know, um, you know, the people who knocked down these buildings, you know, will hear us and I can hear you and the soon the people who knocked down these buildings will hear us all. That was, that was, that was a goosebump moment of presidential leadership that, um, you know, and, and again, it was, it was, it was a moment in this country where we pulled together, uh, when you saw the Democrats and Republicans stand together on the steps of the Capitol, um, you know, we, 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 th we thought, we thought that the country's politics, I think would change more fundamentally than it really did in retrospect. Yeah. We, we thought, in fact, the country's politics, you could argue now 20 years later, have gone in the opposite direction yeah, from what we were hoping and yeah. gotten worse, more polarized, obviously, and, and crazier, much crazier, I'd say than pre nine 11. So that's, that's unfortunate and bad. No, I, I kind of go back and forth in my own mind. I mean, this, the, the country in some ways is in worse shape now, but in other ways, it showed a kind of strength and resilience. We fought these two very difficult wars. Um, we made mistakes at the leadership level. Some of our uh, soldiers and Marines made mistakes. Obviously, there were some, uh, you know, you, you hear about the war criminals, mm -hmm. the Trump pardon, but how many fought honorably and and well, and really an extraordinary number, I would say. And that was the thing that most impressed me. Uh, I was in Iraq once, in Afghanistan once, but talk, talking to them there, but especially when, of course, when people came back here. Uh, this younger generation that all of us conservatives were so concerned about because they'd been educated in these bad schools for 20 years, and they'd been learning all this anti-American stuff from Howard Zinn and all. You know what? They turned out kind of okay, right? I mean, yeah. heck, not just the ones who fought, but the ones who did other things for the country here at home. And I don't know. I, I sort of feel it, it, the country ended up I mean, it seems I'm very unhappy about the last five, yeah. six years, obviously, with Trump and some of the stuff on the left. So, but but even including that, I've got to say, I think the country showed real strength of uh, character and spirit. And maybe that's a heartening lesson for us today, honestly. I feel that, you know, we're in a moment here where you look at things and you think, oh, my God, uh, could we really get out of the, the, the hole we're in? But um Post 9-11, uh, people rose to the occasion, and, and that, that's did. good. It's a good reminder. And, and, and I remember thinking, you know, particularly in the early days of, of the war, uh, the war in Iraq, which, of course, did not go well, um, but but in the, in the early days when we had embedded reporters, we got a real up-close look at, at these young men and women who had come forward to fight for their country, and it was very impressive. I remember thinking, you know, where did they come from? Uh, they'd, you know, that, that whole side of America had kind of been an eclipse and it, it was encouraging. So you've probably seen this store, this new poll in the Washington post this morning, where they asked people, um, you know, did the events of September 11, 2001 change the country for the worse or the better when they asked that a year later in 2002, September, 2002, 55% of Americans said it had changed us for the better. Only 27% said it changed us for worse. But today, only 33% of Americans think that it changed us for the better. 46% say it's changed us for the worse. So again, people have revised their their opinions of all of that. And I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure how I, I, I think I would answer that question that it changed us for the better, but I it can't feel that we are better than we were on September 10th, 2001, right now, given what's happening right now. But I don't necessarily think that all comes from the events of September 11th. Do you understand? I mean, I'm... Oh, I'm exactly I'm, where I'm, you are. I'm, I'm not I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, hedging, I'm hedging and I'm fudging there. But yeah, I, but no, it, because... It's, it's, yeah, yeah. No. It was one of the big stories, I think, is that in some way, the, the you know, the, the effects of 9-11, the memory of it, of course, and, and time, it did its work. And so it's it sort of petered out. It's hard to really know... Hard to blame Trump or hard to blame the some of the craziness of the left on 9-11 one way or the other. I mean, I, I said some people on the left will say, oh, there was anti-Muslim sentiments that Trump then exploited. But they were, I think it was the opposite. If anything, the country resisted those sentiments pretty well. And the conservative movement resisted them pretty well. And McCain and Romney were the Republican nominees and, and repudiated them. Trump turned out to be able to capitalize them in 2015 when there was that resurge of, of terrorism in Europe and the, and the refugees because of Syria. But um, so I'm ambivalent too. Are we, I'm not sure we're better off than we were on September 10th, 
2001, leaving obviously aside the the terrible deaths on 9/11 and then the wars, but leaving even just leaving that aside, it's a matter of kind of general national spirit. I'm not sure 9/11 had that much to do with that one way or the other. Um, yeah. yeah, it turned out that yeah. I mean, and and then some people will say, well, the failures of leadership, that no weapons of mass destruction, badly fought war in Iraq. Uh, 2008 financial crisis really laid the groundwork for the rebellion against the elites and all. I'm not even sure that's true, though, when you really think about it. With those, you know, we've recovered from those things reasonably well. The same elites that 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 maybe were complicit in the collapse of the financial system got us out of it and you know out of the trench without the whole, without, uh, out of the hole without the whole of, of, you know world financial system actually collapsing and we were kind of on a path back and so forth. So. I don't know. I'm. I'm. It's hard to know. What I've got to say. Yeah. I, I feel like it's very indeterminate. It's twenty years a long time. You should be able to make a judgment. But I'm with you in the sense of I don't know really what judgment to make about the country twenty years later. Yeah, isn't that something? You would think that by twenty years, history would have a pretty clear verdict. Okay, so let's go from the. I, by the way, we you know I, I I unplugged for a little while over the, the last few, last few days, and when I plugged back in, I swear once I don't know why I do this. I actually saw this report and I thought this has got to be a parody. This is a joke that that on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, well, every former president of the United States, current president of the United States is honoring this in some very dramatic fashion. On Saturday, the 20th anniversary, Donald Trump and his son are going to be providing live commentary on the Evander Holyfield, Victor Belfort alternate telecast. They're doing. I, I I looked at that and I thought that can't be. There's no way. But I, you you made an interesting point the other day that maybe this is a good thing, right? That, right. You know that as opposed to doing a, a, a game cast. I'm looking at the picture. No holds barred. President Trump hosts the most anticipated heavyweight fight of the year. Full live in person commentary by by President Trump. September 11th. Holyfield versus Belfort. Holyfield is almost 60 years old, by the way. Mm. I mean. so. It's like it's like old guys beating the crap out of each other. But maybe I mean, you know, I mean, you know, part of it is is, you know, it's parody, but maybe it's better that Donald Trump not try to horn in on on one of the more solemn occasions. Yeah, let's have solemnity and uh, solemn people at our events and honor the uh, memory of the people who died and of course the bravery of of those who fought back on flight 93 and the first responders in New York and here at the Pentagon and and subsequently so it, it's a good event for serious people a good they're good good commemorations uh, if that's the right word or, or appropriate commemorations for serious people to attend Trump's not serious in that way he's never had any respect it wasn't the same day that he was boasting that now his his uh, office building might be the tallest in Lower Manhattan oh, or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. um, you know, let him not be part of it. Now, whether the country is closer to the, you know, sober commemorations in uh, Pennsylvania or D.C. or New York or closer to let's watch a kind of ridiculous made-for-TV uh, pseudo heavyweight pseudo championship match, I don't know. I mean, the country has some of both elements. It always has, of course. Uh, and uh, there's some rich symbolism that, there, isn't there? Yeah, and you could argue you know? that, that latter element is maybe a little stronger <laughs> than it was. You know, yes, that that, that maybe the maybe his instinct that the country is into the bread and circuses and fire, and you know, and these these fights uh, than you know professional wrestling than it is you know serious sober James Madison uh, you know discussing constitutional issues with. Uh, with Alexander Hamilton, um, but but the president did uh, weigh in on on American history over the weekend. He issued a very lengthy statement uh, decrying the removal of the Robert E. Lee statute from Richmond, Virginia. He said the statute was magnificent, and then said, "If only we had Robert E. Lee to command our troops in Afghanistan. What an embarrassment we are suffering because we don't have the genius of a Robert E. Lee." Trump has studied that has studied the yeah, war campaign carefully, yeah. I'm sure, you know, and uh, yeah. no, but again, it's, it is, I mean, I think your point about bread and circuses, I hadn't quite thought of it that way is a, yeah. is a good one. I mean, a good way of thinking about it. Democracies have always had this element. God knows Barnum and Bailey and, you know, freak shows and, and sort of, uh, you know, even campaigns, of course, yeah. have had their, you know, elements of hoopla and so forth. Uh, somehow one has always thought in the U.S. and mostly thought that at the end of the day for the, on the serious matters, the more serious uh, attitude prevails, at least in, you know, at the highest levels of the government and so forth. Uh, Trump has certainly challenged that presumption. And I do think as you look around the country, 
the number of people who are willing to just indulge you know, foolish views, uh, just kind of un- views backed by nothing, uh, views that make them feel good. What, what do we usually call it? the performative aspect of politics yeah. has much more has outweighed more than it usually does the sober aspects of politics. And maybe in a way, there his commenting on a heavyweight fight, therefore, is uh, or you yeah. know, giving ridiculous opinions about Robert E. Lee and Afghanistan. Uh, instead of contributing, incidentally, to what could be a moment where the country says, "Okay, look, we we had a kind of certain view of the Civil War for a long time, and now we're coming to grips with a somewhat different view of what happened there, a little different account of history, and removing this public memorial, which was excessive to Robert E. Lee." Um, but you know, and, but of course, Trump isn't going to contribute to that at all. And and no. most and most people on his side, and not that many people on the other side, to be fair, are willing to contribute to that. The level of discourse really is. I don't. The public is the public. To be totally honest, I, I don't really blame them that much. They've always had a. You know, they're not busy studying this stuff. The failure of the elites to, in any way, erect or maintain guardrails, to be willing to uh, chastise people on quote on their own side, to try to say that no, this is not appropriate. That that for me is really striking. It, it is, and and so there, there's two aspects of this. You know, since we're in the bread and circuses thing, and we, we sort of re- refer to what's been going on at the grassroots level, we have a couple of things in the bulwark over the last couple of days about what's been happening at school board meetings, which is really quite extraordinary. And we have a uh, we have a piece this morning. I just want to read a little bit of it. We started the year with an attempted coup uh, laden with QAnon symbolism and apocalyptic rhetoric. The internet meme prophet Q may have disappeared, but like any good apocalypse, QAnon didn't die. It just changed. Um, obviously, you know, some of the deadlines, you know, things didn't happen. Trump was not restored. But most of the instigators and spreaders of these ideas are still there. Some are now campaigning for office. Some are still trying to overturn the 2020 election. And now some are trying to overthrow our schools. Over the past years, the conspiracy theorists have come together under one big apocalyptic tent, the stop the steal election truth is the anti-vaxxers, the anti-maskers. We've seen organized campaigns of harassment, threats of violence, attempts to harm members of school administrations, and physical altercations at school board meetings when masks are mandated. I mean, it really is, Bill, it is getting ugly out there. And, you you know, it, it, there's a temptation to say, well, those are just a little, you know, kind of freak shows. But something is bubbling up. The anger, the disinformation really do, I think, you know, sort of lay the lay the tinder for, you know, possible violence, some sort of a conflagration. And as you point out, where are the people who would normally be the adults in the room saying, we got, we have to stop this. We can't do this. They, you know, the last story of the last five years is basically their surrender, isn't it? Yeah, I really think that's so fundamental. We've talked about that occasionally before. The It's the enablers and the acquiescers and the rationalizers. And you see that just across the board, uh, especially, obviously, on the Republican and conservative side. Some on the left, too, though, the unwillingness to stand up to excesses there, obviously. You wrote about that a bit in the newsletter this morning, yeah. too. And so uh, I think less less fundamental on the left and less uh, with, with le- some damage, but less than on the right, obviously, we have a president and so forth. Now, so I'd say, it, I mean, two things that are striking about what's happening and what you were discussing. The conspiracy theories all kind of meld together. And it turns out it's not the substance of the conspiracy theories people care about so much. It's just they like conspiracies and they yeah. like feeling aggrieved and they like denouncing elites and they like being, feeling to be part of the real America that's fighting the terrible elites that are imposing things on those. I mean, there's no reason, of course, in theory, why being anti-vax should correlate with being pro-election lie, right? I mean, these are kind of different issues, presumably, (laughs) but they do correlate highly because if you believe one, you sort of want to believe the other because you want to believe the whole system is... I don't know, rigged against you or against your uh, Donald Trump, uh, your family. Right. It's your identity. It's not you, you give them right. reasoned yourself into it. You've just this is you know the world you're you're in now. Which makes you wonder about how to combat this because it's yeah. not you know disproving one of them doesn't disprove right. the other six, and and it's not a matter of proof or argument. I, I was struck by a piece I read a few days ago on this too that sort of said we're, we're misunderstanding this. Even the focus on misinformation is kind of misleading. It's not about that they they they. It's not like you learned a bad version of mathematics and you therefore believe falsely that, you know, 10 divided by five is three instead of two. And therefore you, you know, we just need to kind of get, sit you down and get you the good math. That's not what's going on. It's much more, 
you know, broadly cultural or sociological or something. And that's what we need to look at. And, and that's much harder to deal with, of course, than simply saying, if only these memes, you know, the, the, these fake news items weren't circulating. Not that they don't do damage, incidentally, but I just, I, I do think that's a, it's something that all of our kind of, let's correct this mistake, let's correct that mistake. Don't yeah. they understand the science shows this? That's, it's not a matter of understanding quite in that way. It's a matter that they want to believe certain things. But again, there I do think the silence of the enablers is, I don't know, it doesn't cause the belief in conspiracies and the anger and the wish to denounce and to feel good about denouncing others and bullying others but it does enable it and allows more people to sign on i mean i've just got to think if the first people who stormed whatever you know screamed at a school board and screamed at a kid trying to make a presentation or or threatened a principal of a school we've seen all these different aspects of kind of mob action thank god not too much direct mob violence yet but on the on the on the cusp of it don't you think on the precipice i do i do um you know we've seen that if that were immediately denounced immediately denounced by the local by everybody by everybody the local the mayor and the and the republican and democratic you know state representatives and all the way up to the governor and the senators and and also church leaders and everyone else people would say oh gee i guess you know maybe we shouldn't go down that path but no one sees much of a denunciation and if you're the type who thinks well that could be kind of fun to join in that you're you're on for the ride the next time and so i think at this point the crazies have the momentum and the forces of sanity are in retreat well, and also they have three years to build up a head of steam. And, and I think one of the things we've seen is the, is the way that ideas, and I've said this many times before, how the unthinkable becomes the thinkable, that you'll see sort of this little cloud on the horizon. And maybe in the past you would have thought, okay, that's no big deal. Let's, let's just you know, pretend it's not there or ignore it. And then before you know it, you're you know, in the middle of the conflagration. And I think that we are seeing the normalization of violence, the normalization of this apocalyptic rhetoric, this sense that uh, that everything is at stake, everything's the Flight 93 election, that people hate you, that uh, they hate America, they hate God, and therefore any tactic is justified in fighting against them. And that that's spreading, that's metastasizing, and that has real consequences in a society like ours. I, I totally agree. I mean, the normalization of the rhetoric of violence, yeah. unfortunately, is often... Uh, precedes the normalization of violence. And I think, and and people like us, you and I, were, were criticized when uh, Trump accused, as I recall, I was trying to think about this the other day, Josh Mandel had some idiotic tweet, uh, that's redundant in his case, let's even say that, but yeah. the, one of his typically idiotic tweets, and he accused somewhat of treason. I mean, he, does, he uses the word treason or traitor yeah, about every, third, every yeah. third tweet. I think, I remember... I think you and I were among those who criticized Trump for accusing some of his uh, opponents in Congress, I think it was, of mm -hmm. tre treason or traitorous behavior, maybe 2018, maybe 2019, I can't remember. And I, I remember at the time, maybe I was on TV saying something, you know, this is really extraordinary. I mean, it's one thing for some you know, third level politician to throw out a term like that. For the president of the United States, it's very dangerous. And I think Whoever I was on with said, oh, well, come on, Bill. I mean, you know, he's, he's a jerk and he's yeah. using terms don't, don't that he shouldn't use. But well, yeah. yeah, what effect does it have? And now it's utterly routine. That term, traitor and treason, which is a very loaded term and has real implications for how you should treat other people, not, in other words, not as fellow citizens, but as people who seek to destroy your country, it's now just used routinely, and not just by Josh Mandel, but by people at school board meetings and and people on, I don't know, I was watching a couple of focus groups that, that Sarah Longwell did the other day, and, and not even used with a with, by people who are screaming or yelling, used almost like a routine matter. Well, he's a traitor, I mean, you know. And, it's, and, and you think to yourself, that's gotten normalized over, I don't know, three years, four years? I mean, we were, uh, when I think, again, go back to 9-11, we were very careful, I think, to try very. hard, not always successfully, but to try hard to distinguish those who really were terrorists from those who just, you know, practiced a different religion from some of us or, or had even very different views about different things or lived in countries that we didn't like much or with governments that we didn't like much. But that's very different from saying that people are terrorists who seek to destroy your country. And uh, we didn't lock up American Muslims the way we locked up Japanese in World War II and so forth. Um, but when you start calling people traitors the way everyone, uh, so many people do today, that, that has got to be very dangerous for the country. It, it, and I want to stick with this for a moment because, again, it, it, it has become normalized and many people might think, you, you know, people might think that that's sort of a, just a political metaphor, you know, somebody who's on the other side. But 
There are people who take it literally, who do take it seriously. And if you're dealing with a traitor, you do not debate with them. You do not have a fair election with them. You fight them, and they should be subject to arrest, imprisonment, and potential execution. People need to understand that there are people out there, and there doesn't have to be you know, hundreds of millions of people who think that way. But if there are millions of people who believe that their fellow Americans are literally traitors um and you look at a lot of the rhetoric and you know it 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 sometimes is deployed in frightening ways and you mentioned josh mandel who is the leading republican candidate for senate he i think the tweet you're referring to is he referred to alexander vindman as a traitor this is a deeply patriotic american who has served his country for decades who was awarded the purple heart who served in in combat in Iraq, who is, you know, tells one of the great American stories coming here as an immigrant uh, and, 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 and again, you know, trying to be the best American that he could be. But because he chose to testify to the truth about Donald Trump, all of that is wiped away and he is branded as a traitor. It's so despicable. It's so stomach turning. And yet, as you point out, it's become routine and normal. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Alex Bittman really is despicable. He serves in the Trump White House at the NSC yeah. because that's he's you know sent there by the military. He works with John Bolton and so forth, and <clears throat> then he's subpoenaed by Congress and testifies truthfully. You know, when it's, it's shown that a word he said was false, uh, and um, now is is routinely called a traitor. And again, what's striking is Mandel's running for office, and so he's unusually irresponsible and uh, demagogic and really vile in his behavior. Yeah. But I am struck how many people who are followers of his, who, who aren't screaming and yelling and who probably in their personal lives don't, um, you know, wouldn't confront someone perhaps in the way the school board people are, people going to the school board meetings are confronting others. But still, they kind of use the term. And as I, I it does permeate the, the failure to call people on that. And again, so let's take Mandel for yeah. an instance. Has anyone called Mandel on that? There is a, there are, there's a sitting Republican senator in Ohio. There's a sitting Republican governor in Ohio. I mean, does anyone bother even anymore? Does, there are others who served in the military, of course. I mean, does anyone say, wait a second, this is totally inappropriate and dangerous and disgusting, and, and Mandel should apologize. And Mandel shouldn't be supported if it comes to it in a general election, even if you agree with him on tax policy or on you know, your, on something else, some other issue. But how many people are willing to say that? Very few, including there, I'm very few Republican leaders. Josh Mandel, if he wins the Republican nomination, I predict, will be supported by the National Republican Senatorial yeah, Committee, just like Republican candidates elsewhere. He'll be supported by Republican donors. He'll be supported. The Wall Street Journal will be writing editorials about how bad his opponent uh, would be on, on, on tax policy and regulatory policy. Uh, National Review will be exposing some misdeed of his opponent from three years before. And they won't necessarily quite defend Mandel, but they'll just be silent. They'll be a prudent silent about Mandel. Yeah. Yeah, um, anti -anti it's really Mandel. terrible, I think. No, it, it is. And you, your prediction is exactly right, which leads me to the, the next topic I want to discuss, the, the most difficult, painful topic in American politics. And I think we, should, we have to talk about it today. So we'll do it right after this. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters, to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we are back with Bill Crystal. I think the most uh, difficult topic to talk about in American politics is abortion. And I'm wondering right now, you know, I, 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 I've used the, the analogy of the dog that catches the bus. But over the last few days, watching Governor Abbott down in Texas talk about that Texas law that encourages people to drop a dime on, on their neighbors who might involve, be involved in, in an abortion. But watching him try to rationalize uh, why there's no exception for rape. I believe that what he said was something like, and they're saying, well, you know, should a woman, you know, be compelled to carry a child to term that's the result of rape? And and he said, well, they're dealing with that because I'm, I'm, I'm going to arrest and jail all future rapists. And it sort of reminded me that there are some topics that you, that you never want to be talking about. And right now, here are Republicans talking about overturning Roe v. Wade, passing laws that ban abortion, 
in trying to justify why that should apply to women who have been impregnated through rape. This does not strike me as something that Republicans really would relish debating going into the midterm elections. Your take? I, I mean, I agree with that. And, and incidentally, they're also the, denouncing those of us who said, you know, this is this is not good for the pro-life movement or the pro-life cause. It's going to alienate more people that it wins yes. over. It's not going to stop. It's not even clear how many abortions it will stop in Texas, incidentally, since people will hurry up and get them, I suppose, in the first six weeks to go out of state. And anyway, the law is going to be overturned. But again, it's the silence of the pro-life elites here is very comparable to the silence of the Republican elites in the hmm. case of Mandel. Hmm. In this respect, are they for the law or against it? I mean, privately, of course, they're, oh my God, what a foolish law. I wish the Mississippi law was much better considered and it's 15 weeks and they have a very good argument coming before the Supreme Court. And that's our strategy is to use that to either chip away at or, or and change or, or even repeal Roe v. Wade. And this is a distraction. And some of the others, I've talked to these people in the last 72 hours and several people called me up upset that I, who edited Pro Life magazine for over two decades, mm -hmm. you know, has been so critical of the Texas law and has said, no, you know, this is a sideshow. It doesn't really matter much and stuff. None of them, none of them will say, even in passing, yes, I'm against this law. This is an unwise law. This is huh. a bad law. This, this bounty hunting approach is really destructive. The six-week limit is not a real limit and, and not, a, not a defensible, really, limit, I would say. If you're going to have a limit, if you just want to be say we should not have a, be, you know, be anti-abortion, that's fine. That's consistent. But the six-week thing is kind of ridiculous. And 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 then the failure to have a, the exceptions and politically, I believe, will lead to a backlash. But they're unwilling to say that. It's all anti-anti-Texas now at this point in, in pro-life world and, and in official conservative world. Okay, and so, so it's totally yeah. irresponsible. And a movement, even a movement that I think is a fairly noble cause in many ways, the pro-life cause, a movement that's unwilling to say, no, this goes too far. It's like being anti-communist and not right. being willing to denounce the most crazed conspiracy theories in the 50s and 60s about how uh, General Marshall or Dwight D. Eisenhower are communists. You end up hurting your own cause. And I do think I think there are a lot of people out there who are in between, obviously, on abortion. The polls show this. They're open to a more pro-life uh, stance than, you know, the, than Roe v. Wade had or than Casey. They're open to restrictions. They're open to more flexibility for states. To the degree that the Texas law becomes the focus of debate, and I think it could be because there'll be, it'll continue, there'll be developments in Texas, right? Things will be happening in terms of enforcement of it and legal cases, and et cetera. To the degree that that becomes the focus, I just think a lot of people who are in between are going to say, well, look, if this is what it means to give more latitude to the pro-life forces, forget it. Forget it. Let's just have Roe v. Wade and let's just, let, you know, vote for governors in our states and 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 hope that Supreme Court justices just say, shut this down. Because we are not interested in going in this direction. See, I, 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 agree, I agree with you on this. I've been I've been part of the pro-life movement for many, many years. But but, um, you know, some time ago really came to the conclusion that what you needed was a culture of life, not simply political wins and court decisions. And by that, I mean, look, uh, the, the reality is that you need to change hearts and minds. You need to create an environment in which people will make a different choice. And we've had some really wonderful things written about this over the last few days. Mona Charon has a wonderful piece in the bulwark today. Um, is, you know, the pro-life cause deserves better than the Texas law. And she talks about, you know, wh why not doing, do things to make adoption more palatable, more attractive? Uh, about a year or two ago, we ran a wonderful piece by Sarah Quinlan in the in the bowler talking about the need to create a culture, you know, uh, you know remove some of the impediments for women, uh, you know, policies that are actually pro-family, pro-child, as opposed to just simply the rhetoric. And I know that Tim Miller wrote about this eloquently, and JVL has written about this. And David French has a, just a wonderful piece over at the Dispatch where he talks about the, the fact that you have a lot of people who would be potentially potential allies who are being alienated. And this has real world consequences. And, you know, in terms of, you know, I, I saw somebody tweeted, well, this law will, you know, will save babies. Well, not if it discredits the pro-life movement for the next 40 years. And if, if in fact, you know, what, you know, Republicans, you know, embrace you know, do they really want, you know, spying and informing um, on on people? Do they really want that to be the image? Do they really want to talk about women who have been raped and, uh, you know, as, you know, being prevented from making a, a, ch a choice here? This, I think, long term loses you the culture 
And that matters because the culture will determine the kinds of choices that we have and the kind of respect that we want to have for human life. So does this enhance the respect for human life or does it alienate people? And this is a real decision. This is not rationalization. And as you and I both know, this was a huge issue that drove a lot of people uh, and the conservative elites to go along with Trump because they figured, okay, um, 90, 99% of everything he does is terrible, but if he appoints the right Supreme Court justices, maybe we can overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, now here we are. And I mean, is, so is, they this, say, is this what we want? You know? they, they think, and I've heard this argument privately, and you've seen it a little bit publicly from sort of, let's call them pro-life elites, intelligent people, friends of ours, that um, in some cases, previous friends, past friends of ours, mm-hmm. that um, you know this will increase the chances of the court overturning Roe because they'll see what a mess it is Roe has created and they'll, they'll want to clear the playing field. I think that's wrong, actually. I think if you're... Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch, you can't help but uh, look at the, or Justice Barrett, you can't help but look at what's going on around you and think, geez, I don't know, is this healthy for our country? Are we going to, by 5-4 or even 6-3, overturn a 50-year precedent and create this kind of politics? I, they're, not, they're not supposed to think that way quite. I mean, they are supposed to think that way at some level, but they are supposed to you know, apply the law and not be political actors. But they are, they, they're allowed to think in a broader way about the implications of their decisions. And I've got to think they take a look at this Texas stuff. But the funny thing is these same pro-life elites were saying uh, a year ago exactly what you just said. It's very important to... Uh, confirm Justice Barrett, Judge Barrett, obviously, and uh, um, and uh, it's very important to even support Trump because we get good Supreme Court appointments, the lower court appointments, and we have a sophisticated strategy with this Mississippi law, which is much more carefully written and well briefed, and that's going to be argued before the court. And this is our way of, of of eroding or even overturning Roe in a way that's appropriate and legal and constitutional and wins hearts and minds, makes the case as opposed to the opposite. Now it's the opposite direction, and they're quiet. They will not denounce this. They will not, you know, all they'll do is denounce those of us who are denouncing this, who are saying this is a terrible mistake. Uh, And so the degree, it's what's happening with the pro-life movement is what's happened with other parts of the conservative movement, unfortunately, which is they start off uh, with a, you know, reasonable position, maybe not 100% reasonable, but mostly reasonable position and set of policies and strategies. They start to kind of accommodate less reasonable policies and strategies, then they attack those who criticize the less reasonable policies and strategies, and before you know it, they're basically all in for the crazy policies and strategies. So a friend of mine, who I really respect, uh, I won't say who, but I mean, is now defending, the sort of defending the Texas law or attacking critics of the Texas law because some other kinds of legislation also allow for private attorneys general to bring cases in environmental law and stuff. I mean, a ludicrous analogy, honestly. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a way of saying, why are people so upset about these private uh, rights of action, these, these lawsuits oh, for 10000 that you can make $10,000 off by, by I guess, uh, t- you know, tattling on someone who refers a her 16 year old uh, niece who's maybe seven or eight or 10 weeks pregnant from some you know god forbid some terrible sexual assault or something refers that person to an abortion provider now you get 10,000 bucks for 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 tattling on that person and that's defensible i mean they're not really quite willing to say it's defensible but they're certainly willing to criticize anyone who says it's indefensible uh, so I mentioned David French wrote about this, and, and he said, you know, he makes the point, which we've been making here, you know, be, to be pro-life does not mean supporting every possible strategy, even if it's only temporarily successful. Uh, strategies designed to ban abortion do not necessarily help end abortion, and ending abortion is the ultimate aim of the pro-life movement in theory. But he says, as I've heard so many believers from many faiths say, I'm pro-life and I want the law to protect the unborn. I welcome refugees. I want to address the contemporary reality and persistent legacy of racism. I want politicians to be people of good character and fundamental integrity. Where do I go? Where is my political home right now? It's an interesting point that if if you support, let's do whatever we can to, you know, to uh, you know, and, and enhance the ability of people to be able to, you know, keep and raise their 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 children, uh, to have a a, a de- you know a decent, humane society. You know, does that mean that you go along with the pro life movement all the time? And no, I don't think that it does. Um, so I do think that it's it's worth. I maybe we do have this moment at some point to have a debate about creating a culture of life. It would be you know nice to have it. You know, why do women have abortions? 
Um, many of the women who have late-term abortions do so because they can't afford to have a child or because, you know, very, very it's a very personal choice, obviously, or, or because they've been abused. We can't fix every problem. But there are things that society could do to be more child-friendly. And I you do know, think that this, this opening for, for more, for example, you know, bigger, uh, you know, child credits, you know, is, is a positive pro-child, pro-family thing that the pro-life movement should regard as, as important. I mean, what happens after birth, it's a cliche, but, you know, is not irrelevant to this issue. Yeah, and much of yeah. uh, the pro-life movement has regarded much of that as important yeah. over the decades, that you were very much involved, and I was somewhat involved, yeah. and a lot of our colleagues were involved, Mona very much so. And the number of abortions in the United States is about half of what it was 40 yeah. years ago at its peak. And that's a pretty big achievement. And I guess this Huge. gets back in a way to our original discussion. Why the psychology, therefore, of a kind of flight, why the Flight 93 psychology now on this issue above all? I mean, that is to say, it's an issue on which there's been progress progress has been made. And so I don't think it's about abortion. You know what I mean? It's not about people sitting there and saying, gee, how can we really reduce the number of abortions in Texas? And how can we lay the groundwork longer term for a more pro-life culture in Texas? Because this is not doing that. It's about how do we attack our enemies? How do we, you know, find a clever way around the Supreme Court or the, or the lower federal courts, which have been enjoining some laws uh, to, to, show, uh, to show that we can kind of game the system I don't really know what it's about, honestly, at this point. I do not, I, I guess I'm just going to say, I do not believe, there may be individuals, of course, who are motivated by sincere pro-life feelings who were involved in drafting this law and voting for it. I do not believe that is the dominant spirit behind this law. And I don't believe it's the dominant spirit. I hate to attack individuals, but I'm just going to say, for Governor Abbott and for Lieutenant Governor Patrick and all these people, they are not sitting around having long discussions with serious people about how do we really improve the prospects for reducing in the long-term, medium-term, the number of abortions in Texas and creating a culture of life. That is not what they care about. And I, I'm sorry if calling them out offends other people in the pro-life movement who are better people, I think, and who genuinely care about this. But you know what? If you're part of a movement, you've got to call out the people on your side who are behaving dishonestly and dishonorably. And uh, if you're not willing to there's a kind of Gresham's law that gets put into effect. The pro-life movement becomes the Texas law. You know, it, it also occurs to me that this whole debate has completely shifted uh, because up until now, there's been no accountability. It's been a freebie, right, for people like Abbott, where you could say you're pro-life, but without ever having to deliver or do anything. Right. Right. That, that this was an easy position for them to say, because you basically plant your flag in the culture war without having any real implications in the real world. And now they ought to be aware that that's changed because now you are passing these laws. You are doing these things. You may still think you're just signaling tribal loyalty or, uh, you know, your you, your identity politics, but it will have real tangible consequences. And that's something that for the last 30, 40 years, they haven't actually experienced, I don't think. Yeah, and I hope they do talk to people who are maybe related to them, kids and friends of their kids and people who are of childbearing age and people who are in college and high school, incidentally, and uh, might face these kinds of personal choices you've been talking about. And I hope they have that kind of, you know, for them, it's easy to be performative if you're, you know, presumably a 60-year-old male or even a 60-year-old female, to be honest. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that's going to affect the rest of your life, presumably, if you define that narrowly. But I, I, I don't know. You sort of hope that reality will therefore hit. But people turn out to be pretty impervious, I think, what COVID showed us. And another depressing thing in this depressing conversation somewhat, though interesting I, one, I, I would say, personally, I mean, yeah. is how much does reality you know, matter anymore. I know. People then just deny the next step of the reality. And I, if, if, if this has some backfire, if the courts say, you know what, in a year from now, if the Supreme Court in effect says, we're going to, you know, accept some of the Mississippi law, we're going to send a little bit of it back to be tinkered with, we're going to modify Roe v. Wade, but we're not going to simply overturn it. Do they sit back and say, gee, that Texas thing was a mistake? No, they just say that they're John, not just John Roberts, but Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh are traitors as well, right? Oh, no, that, that's, that's exactly right. No, it, it, you know, we, we talk a lot about threats to democracy. And, and I think maybe the most fundamental threat is the one that you just identified, which is that when people become convinced that 
there's no point in making an argument based on logic and facts and reason because no one will never make a difference. Nobody will ever change their mind. Then when that kind of discourse becomes irrelevant, well, then what are the implications for democracy? Then what do we talk about? Except pick your sides, pick your cudgels, go to war. I mean, think what, just practically speaking, think now the attention that court decision, presumably there will be one in June, July of, uh, uh, June, early July of 2022 will have, think about what the election year will look like. I, I mean, I think the degree to which we are in a volatile environment with the, the rhetoric of violence, with the heightening of will, the total lack of responsibility on, especially on the right to damp down, uh, tensions and angers and so forth and, 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 and go the other way, either with silence or even a kind of wink and a nod towards uh, the rhetoric of violence and of and of denunciation. Uh, what what are we going to? I mean, it makes yeah. one worried about actually what twenty twenty two is going to be like in terms of our civic uh, peace and comedy and and uh, just basic structures of kind of minimum structures of civilization here. Well, and 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 again, in the two years after that, leading up to twenty twenty four, and how that election will be resolved, uh, which I think is a huge question mark. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for. Helping me re-enter the world here. Uh, welcome appreciate back, it. Welcome Which, back to the world. Yeah. To the world. Yeah. I thought this was a, this maybe it wasn't our most cheerful discussion ever, but for me it was actually thought provoking. I hadn't, you know, really. It was helpful to really begin to think these things through. And people really need. I'll just maybe we'll say one last mm-hmm. thing, uh, not to be too, you know, hortatory mm-hmm. or whatever. But we all need to think these things through. And I, I really mm-hmm. plead with any of our conservative friends and pro-life friends uh, who are listening to this to. They, they can come to a different conclusion, obviously, than you do or than I do. But think this through. Don't don't just, you know, read some press release from NARAL that you hate and decide you have to support what's happening in Texas. Yes. Thank you, Bill. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.